Welcome to Cobden Centre Radio. I am your host, Patrick Crozier. It is the 5th of February 2013. My guest today is Detlef Schlichter. For many years, Detlef worked in the city before writing Paper Money Collapse, which outlines how the present paper currencies will eventually be replaced by commodity-backed money. Detlef Schlichter, welcome to Cobden Centre Radio. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's my pleasure. Uh, Detlef, in your book, you argue that governments everywhere are desperately trying to avoid um, a necessary recession slash depression, call it what you will. In doing so, they will print ever more money and through various means distribute it through the economy. At some point, this will lead to high levels of inflation, if not outright hyperinflation. But it hasn't happened yet. So where's my currency collapse? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. I think, uh, I think we're, getting, we're getting closer. Um, but, I mean, maybe I should say a few things uh, before we you know, try to put a, a time frame on it. Um, uh, I think you described my, my theory correctly here. I mean, we've, the, the, the global financial system has maneuvered itself into a position where we have accumulated so many imbalances, you know, what I, in my book, often call dislocations. Um, some of them are quite obvious, uh, overextended bank balance sheets, distorted asset markets, excuse me, distorted asset markets, and excessive levels of debt. Now, to a large degree, uh, sovereign debt, public sector debt, which is still growing. And um, in, a, in a way, uh, uh, sort of the, the system or part of what we've experienced in the crisis was almost uh, the market's attempt to liquidate a lot of these imbalances and dislocations. And this is, in fact, what crises you know, are. You know, the, the, uh, there are a market process by which you know, the market cleanses the system of these accumulated dislocations. So um, uh, the, the argument that I develop in my book is, is, is pretty much that you know, we will reach a point that we reached in, in any fiat money system in history, which is you reach that point where you have to make the decision of whether you do allow the market to make these adjustments, uh, you know, although they are painful, to, dislocate, uh, to, to liquidate the dislocations you have accumulated, or you try to avoid this by growing, you know, by the pumping ever more money into the system by trying to prop up asset markets, by, by trying to avoid, you know, a, a deflationary correction. Um, and this is what we see policy do. So, so there are two forces here. The market wants to liquidate, and I think that urge is still prevalent. Sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's maybe a little bit more contained. But by and large, I think if the market was left to itself, it would liquidate. And on the other hand, you have policy, which is trying to reflate to keep the structures in place, and we see zero interest rates around the world. We see central banks around the world using their own balance sheets to, to prop up their domestic asset markets, their banks, uh, to keep asset prices high and keep yields low and risk premiums tight. And, and this is all a gigantic effort to fight the, the forces of deflation. So forces of policy reflation versus forces of market liquidation and deflation. Now, uh, so uh, again, the end game is some form of correction. And that's why I think the word collapse is, is, is clearly um, um, you know, adequate. Uh, if you agree with my thesis, then you will see that some form of collapse is evident. The only question is, is it the deflationary correction that the market wants now, or is it 
a hyperinflationary correction as central banks print ever more money and try to fight the forces of correction ever more and then destroy the, the, the fiat money in the process. So some form of you know, painful correction will come uh, in many ways. I personally am of the view that it would be better to have you know, the market you know, liquidate this sooner rather than keep piling dislocations on top of it. So some kind of, kind of uh, correction here is, is inevitable. And I think because policymakers are so committed right now and the, the mainstream economic views are so much in favor of you know, stimulating the economy, keeping interest rates low, reflating, that I think you know, the destruction of the monetary unit is maybe, maybe the more likely outcome. So, so, so this is sort of the backdrop of all of this. And, and I think so far... Uh, uh, the what we've seen since the book came out in 2011 is, I believe, pretty much what what I described. Because since 2011, central banks have expanded their balance sheet further. All of them, all the major central banks have done this. Uh, quantitative easing, which had already started when I wrote my book, I started to write it in 2009. It came out in 2011. Quantitative easing had started in Britain, started in the United States. These programs have not ended. They have continued, and new rounds of quantitative easing have been started. And now, in the United States, already officially, it's been called open-ended. Uh, the the ECB in Europe has made a commitment to unlimited government bond purchases, if if need be. So, so here we already see we, we move further in that direction. On the other hand, the forces of correction have also been around. We've seen this in various places probably most recently with the euro debt crisis last year. <clears throat> so uh, these two forces are, are working together. Now, when will this lead to, to, to either one or the other? You know, the short answer, Patrick, and the honest answer is I don't know. And, and um, uh, this obviously can be dragged out, and it has been dragged out, but I see nothing yet in, in the developments in the real economy or in financial markets that would tell me that there is something fundamentally differently going on from what I described. So this tug of war between market and, and policy is going on. I think one of the questions for me is what will the trigger be for this to maybe spill over into an inflationary correction. And here I think I look at two things in particular. Uh, I look at uh, 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 rising inflation concerns. If the market or the public realize that this money printing will most likely continue and will be will even have to accelerate in order to you know, push through the accumulated dislocations and stimulate the economy. If, if people realize that this will have to continue, that would you know, cause inflation expectations to rise. But I think inflation expectations will only really rise materially when we see headline inflation continue to go up. So if inflation moves up somewhat and inflation expectations move up, that will be an interesting point because at some point I think the market will demand higher market interest rates, higher yields in markets to compensate for that risk. And I do think policymakers will not allow that to happen and will counter this with even more money printing. And that's the dangerous point. So inflation and inflation expectations materializing, that's a trigger point when it gets more dangerous. Um, and another your potential scenario you could see is concern about sovereign solvency rising, as we've seen in the case of Greece. And again, the trigger mechanism here is the market demands higher yields, higher risk premiums, demands you know, more compensation for taking this financial risk, for carrying all this debt. 
And, uh, and, and this then is again something that policymakers don't want to allow because the system cannot cope with higher, higher yields and higher interest rates. It's, it's still dependent. It's almost addicted to cheap money and, and cheap credit. When, and, when, you and the say that, when you say that the system is addicted to, to debt and, and, and low interest rate, which, which particular institutions among that are, are, I mean, for instance, if I go, go to the bank and I take out a loan, it'll be quite a high interest rate, won't it? Uh, yeah, but I think that uh, I mean it, it, the obviously right now most of the a lot of the borrowing that goes on right now in the system is obviously done now by the public sector. In a, in a way, we've moved to the situation that I described as you know sort of uh, uh, the central banks are the lenders of last resort, as the, gov- the public sector is almost the borrower of last resort. And we see in many places now that the central bank is pumping money into the system by buying the government's debt. And so the, and the government then spends the money. So, so the, the money creation and, and, and debt accumulation process now goes from the central banks through the uh, public sector, what used to go more from the private banks through like the housing market. Uh, so the channels have somewhat changed, and they needed to change because the private sector channels are clocked. Uh, and, and so that's why you know, the public sector is basically now taking both sides of the equation. The central bank is printing the money and the, and the, the public sector is spending it. Uh, and and uh, but in order, when I say addiction to low interest rates, I mean uh, low interest rates and rounds of quantitative easing have also been implemented to, you know, support the banking system, which is obviously highly levered. I mean, banks are always highly leveraged. Uh, by definition, it's a leveraged business. But obviously, uh, after the the recent credit boom that ended in 2007, most of these banks have ended up with uh, balance sheets that are larger than they've ever been and, and, and capital ratios that are lower than they've ever been. So the, the banking system has been obviously exposed as being very, very vulnerable, and we have low interest rates to support the banks, uh, to, to um, support this financial infrastructure. Perhaps you explain what a capital ratio is. Yeah. Sorry. What, what do you mean by capital ratio? No, uh, uh, obviously, you know, the banks can borrow money from the central bank and expand mm-hmm. their balance sheets and conduct a lot of their, you know, obviously their lending business by, you know, creating deposit money on, their, on, their, on the other side of their balance sheet. Um, but in, in doing this, expanding their balance sheet, they obviously take financial risk, you know, of, for every unit mm-hmm. of capital they hold. Uh, also, for a, as they do this, they, they, they create more risky assets for all the reserves they hold. You know, we have a fractional reserve banking system, and, and, and that means the banks hold... You know, a but I, I, I sort reserve. of get into the fact that the, 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 the people talk about capital ratios and they talk about reserve ratios and they're not the same thing, are they? They're not the same thing. No, no, they're not. They're not the, the same things. But 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 you know, banks always need to monitor you know, obviously the, the, the balance sheet risk, which for you know a bank, given that sort of they they run by definition, banks run certain liquidity risk and they run a solvency risk and credit risk. You know, that's part of their business. And running a bank means managing these risks. But the problem that we had is in our, um, you know, obviously fiat money system, and in particular in this, in, in the last decades in which we have repeatedly, uh, you know, ran policies with very low, low interest rates and encouraged, you know, credit expansion, uh, you know, by keeping you know, interest rates low and providing more bank reserves. You know, the central banks have done this to the banking system. That's why we created all these, you know, the credit booms and the, 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 the highly levered economies and the housing booms that we had in the U.S., in the U.K., in Spain. Um, ultimately, the core um, uh, cause of this 
has been a policy of you know cheap money right at the core you know at the central bank level <laughs> and um so uh, this has caused central banks to expand their balance sheet uh, sorry the banking system to expand its balance sheet and um and since this credit bubble burst in 2007 and 2008 the banks obviously now want to protect their positions they they um uh, obviously i think if we had a free market we know some of these banks would have you know defaulted you know and 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 collapsed and and quite a few banks did collapse but we also know that in many cases the the central banks stopped this from happening provided massive amounts of extra reserves and liquidity to the banking system in some cases the government bailed out these banks but you know these problems have not been solved because the banking system well, people may say it's still standing, but it's it's basically still an intense scare. You know, it is living on life support, and life support from super low interest rates. Uh, I mean, I mean a, ba- a bad debt doesn't become a good debt just because some money has been printed. It's still a bad exactly debt. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, right. if you say that the the the, the, the key the, at the core of my book is, is you know my book is based on uh, you know, various economic theories, but predominantly the Austrian school of economics, which has a business cycle theory, a, a theory of recessions that is based on what already in the 19th century was known as the monetary theory of the business cycle. The idea that, that business cycles are largely the result of money and credit expansion, which causes dislocations. And these then lead to recessions, as I mentioned earlier. And and we've been through a massive, you know, credit boom, and that is now you know, turned into a bust. But obviously, we have not allowed, and policy has not allowed, and policymakers have not allowed, and central banks have not allowed the system to make the adjustments that would have occurred in a free market. So yes, our banks are still open, and they're open for business, or you know, they're not lending a lot, but they're standing there because. The, you know, the policymakers don't want them, A, to fail, and they don't want them even to shrink. You know? so, so that's why I, I think there is a lot of talk about the banking system deleveraging, where in some pay, places that may have occurred, but by and large, policy is geared towards avoiding this, avoiding credit contraction, because the banks would have had to you know, sell assets, you know, liquidate assets, sell debt, and we would have quickly found out that a lot of that debt that sits on these balance sheets and on the balance sheets of levered institutions, uh, that these have no real home. You know, there is not a pool of savings out there that would support these assets, certainly not at, at current prices. So we would have had massive corrections in certain assets. Uh, sorry, Dale, can you explain that? How, how would savings support asset prices? I mean, we're talking about, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about housing, house prices being, being English. Is that... Is that the sort of thing you mean? Well, the uh, the um, uh, clearly, yeah, it's, it's, it's house prices, but it's other prices. It's obviously all the the financial instruments that have been created, the the, the loans that have been issued and and been traded among the banks that support, you know, these this, the the highest high evaluations of, for example, real estates and other assets. The housing boom. Uh, this housing boom could only take place because it was tied to a credit boom. You know, there was extra credit around in the economy. There were loans available to people to take them out and, and buy houses on credit and, and, and take out mortgage loans and leverage up their houses. Now, if you look in the United States, the ten, in the 10 years up to the bursting of the housing bubble in 2007, so from 1997 to 2007, house prices in the United States, you know, rose three times faster than in the previous 100 years. So it tells you we had a massive, unprecedented housing boom. Now, that correlated and 
you know, quite, and the cause of this was, was, you know, the availability of housing credit because, you know, mortgage uh, debt also grew by, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but, but by many fold, uh, the outstanding, the size of mortgage loans and mortgage debt in the United States. Now, there's nothing wrong with debt. You know, there's nothing wrong with borrowing. There's nothing wrong with rising asset prices. You know, if people, you know, if more people save, besides society gets wealthier, we save money is being channeled from savers to borrowers, and these use these borrowers may use this money to buy houses or something else. the The problem starts when you have these massive changes in asset prices and a massive accumulation in debt that has no correlation whatsoever with savings. You know, nobody has saved, and if people save, if people save from the economy, they make a conscious decision to reallocate real resources from one area of the economy, namely consumption-related areas of the economy, to more you know, forward-looking, um, uh, long-term parts of economic activity, you know, like, like building houses. You know, a house only pays back its initial investment over many, many years. You know, it's an initial outlay that is high, and then the return comes over many, many years. And, 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 and this is an, an economy... That is only possible if people have a low time preference, if they're willing to part with resources now, allocate them into these longer term projects. That goes through credit markets and the financial markets and leads to capital accumulation. That's all good things. That is all good. That's how the economy thrives and builds a capital stock. All good things. But the problem comes in when you accelerate this process by pumping a lot of cheap money into the economy because suddenly there's a lot of investment. There's a lot of house price accumulation. There's a lot of extra debt. But there's no correlation whatsoever with people's savings. You know, nobody has saved. People still want to mm-hmm. consume as much as they did before. They want resources to be allocated to current consumption. They don't want everything to be reallocated into the housing market. But it, for a while, it did seem like people wanted everything al- uh, allocated to the housing market. But there was an illusion, an illusion that was created by cheap money. And... The problem with these illusions is they only last for so long and suddenly we see, you know, the reality. The reality is the public right now does not want to have all these resources allocated to the housing market. You know, if people really... I mean, we we, we saw that reality, I mean, in September 2007, didn't we, when um, Northern Rock went bust uh, or or needed a special lending facility from the the, the Bank of England. That that was the moment, was was it not? That is part. Of, that is obviously part of it. But I, w- I would say the idea that sort of the housing market has moved, you know, way too far ahead, and 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 there was was in, in a way there was fueled with cheap credit. That I think is the ultimate. Um, uh, there was there was the ultimate underlying problem. Obviously, banks like Northern Rock were were part, were among the conduits that channeled that you know cheap money into the mortgage market, and and there were the the institution that that then had too much balance sheet risk. And the problem with these situations always is, you know, once you allowed this easy, you know, money to affect your economy and change capital allocations and change prices and distort your economy, you know, the British economy in 2007 was c- completely out of balance. It, it, it may have felt it was great. It, you know, the years leading up to 2007 may have felt it's a great boom, but we all know it was a big party and the hangover was about to come. Now, you know, when the, 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 the housing bubble burst, that's the moment when it became clear that there were massive dislocations. I come back to the term, you know, dislocations and imbalances, and the market wanted to liquidate them. And part of that would have been to liquidate Northern Rock, but obviously we didn't allow 
Melbourne Rock to be liquidated. You know, nobody wants that to happen. So easy money, zero interest rates, government bailouts. And to this day, our monetary and economic policy, not only in Britain, around the world, is being run to not allow the credit boom to unwind. You know, the, the policy is designed... Well, first of all, the policy was designed to stop the liquidation, and now the policy is partially even designed to keep credit expansion going so that we get a bit of extra economic growth. We squeeze a little bit of extra economic growth out of, out of this economy via, again, artificially cheapening credit, again pumping more money into the economy, in a way doing the same policy that has led to the crisis, which is to encourage people to take on more debt, to borrow, to you know, take out, a, out another mortgage. Hair of the dog house. economics. That's what we want to do. I was going to say hair of the dog economics. <laughs> I, I think, I You've think had it the is, hangovers. It is, it is, it is, I mean, my frustration is simply that, you know, again, I, it's not a day goes by without a politician saying, oh, we need to unlock the flow of credit. You know, we need to get the banks lending again. So that means people want more debt because, you know, the economic thinking has been that, you know, low interest rates, credit, you know, cheap credit, these are good things. And again, I keep saying there's nothing wrong with low interest rates, nothing wrong with debt. There's not even anything wrong with derivatives or trading or, but, you know, as long as it's built on sound money, it can be done in a stable way because sound money is like a, and I say hard and inelastic money at the core of the financial system. It is a bit like an, like an anchor. It pulls back the financial system to, you know, it keeps it on an even keel, so to speak. And, and, I mean, by buying money, system, we mean things like gold and silver, don't we? That's yeah, exactly. And, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, think it, uh, I think it was a mistake to do away with the gold standard. I, I know people would, you know, challenge this, and this is not mainstream thinking today, but um, uh, my book is not so much about the gold standard, and I'm not even, you know, directly in, in my book advocating a gold standard. What my book and what my, all my work in recent years has been about is simply to, if you like, attack this mainstream view that you know, the elastic money, the ability to constantly expand money at the core of our financial system, and therefore to stimulate the economy, to manage economic growth, to avoid bank runs and credit contraction, that, all these, that this is a great thing because by, by using it, we can create you know, a, a more stable economy. And the opposite is, 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 is the case. You know, even uh, a, a fairly low inflation rate from year to year, and you know, can mean that underlying the underlying monetary economy is getting out of balance yeah. because the constant expansion of money must change relative prices, must lower artificially interest rate, must lead to these kind of imbalances I just described. If you let, let cheap money operate long enough, you will have a dislocated economy as we created globally. And to this day, we don't, maybe we don't know how to adjust it, but, you know, we don't want to let it correct. Right. Um, if I can summarize, say something you were saying at the beginning of that, was you seem to be saying that um, up until 2008, up until the crash, um, the expansion was happening, the expansion of money was happening within the, within the private sector, within the, the, the fractional there were the banking system, the private banking system, and people taking out loans. But since then, it's happened by the central bank printing money and um, by the government taking out loans in the form of uh, government bonds, um, which is a big change. But 
I mean, I mean, I've I've seen a, there's a fairly well known graph the the Fed produced um, a few years ago, which shows how its reserves just rocketed after the after the the crash in 2008, and yet. Okay, I, I'm, I'm talking now. I'm talking about British pounds, but a similar process happened in, in, in England as well with quantitative easing. And yet, I find that in the last year, petrol has has come down. I'm not really conscious of any inflation at all. Um, why is that? Well, the uh, uh, I would say. I mean, I think the way that you describe the process is absolutely correct. I mean, to add one more thing, I think. Up to 2008, yes, most of the credit creation occurred in the private banking system, and it was channeled into certain asset markets. But but even this process was, you know, sort of supported by the central banks constantly, you know, injecting more reserves into the banking system and constantly, you know, encouraging the banks to do this. And please remember that in in like 1998, for example, when we had, you know, a, a brief financial crisis, people will hardly remember it today. Uh, uh, Russia defaulted in 1998 and the hedge fund LTCM collapsed and, and, and then interest rates were lower to keep the banks from contracting their balance sheets. Then uh, in 2001, you know, after the Nasdaq bubble burst in 2000 and 2001, we had obviously 9-11 and then uh, the big corporate defaults in 2002 in the United States, Enron and WorldCom, at the time the largest corporate defaults in American history. And again, interest rates were lower to to, to absorb these shocks, so to speak, and keep the system expanding. So central bank, yeah, you're right, the process was mainly occurred in the private sector and private banks, but at crucial moments, can I ask a really stupid question here? When we talk about interest rates being lowered, that is the interest rate that the central bank charges a private bank. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. And that for its... Correct. And is that a particular sort of transaction that's taking place, or is it all transactions that might take place between between them? I'm, I'm, a, bit, I'm a bit hazy about how this works. No, the, it is it is it is only. I mean, the the the, the central bank determines at what kind of rate the uh, the um, the banks borrow from the central bank. Well, you know, very about the overnight money, the overnight loans. The banks lend money and, and borrow money from one another, and lend money to one another. In the interbank market, the overnight rate is also very strongly influenced by the central bank because the central bank is constantly in the market there and can direct that rate. So, so there are certain interest rates in the interbank market and between the central bank and the banks that the central bank controls pretty, pretty tightly. Uh, and then importantly, the central bank has control over the monetary base, which is sort of the the raw material of the banking industry, which is really sort of the money that, that is sort of the reserve money for uh, the banking system. Uh, now, obviously, some people will argue, I hope I'm not getting too technical here, some people will argue that well, in, a, in a credit boom, often the banks go ahead and lend money just in the knowledge that they could turn back to the central bank and ask for the extra reserves, so because this, the central bank would not you know, uh, 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 you know, refuse to give them the reserves. In, in, now, is this the uh, lender of last resort? Exactly. But, about, but, right. but again, I think that is a very technical point and it should not in any shape or form uh, distract from the fact that the central bank is not a market institution. It's not a, the creation of the free market. It is no. a, an interventionist tool by which, you know, you can determine certain interest rates in the banking sector and the central bank has very good control over bank reserves 
and by increasing bank reserves, or even by letting the banks know that the central bank stands ready to provide extra reserves that can encourage its extra money creation and lending. But I do not want to, I want to come back to your question because you said after 2008, um, the, um, after 2008, this has moved more to the public sector. So what would have happened is, okay, the banks are now maxed out because they, after 2007, 2008, Lehman Brothers, Northern Rock, the banks are scared. They know they have huge balance sheets, dodgy assets. The prices of these assets are questionable. And uh, so they, 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 they stop growing. They want to repair their balance sheets. They want to save capital. They want to be a bit more prudent. So giving more reserves to them will now not lead to, you know, the, to more lending, the, central, the, bank, the private banks do not want to lend. Well, the, in the first phase of the crisis, the central banks like the Fed or the Bank of England massively expanded the, the bank reserves, not in an, attempt, in, a, in an attempt to encourage the banks to lend, but simply to avoid a bank run and an entire collapse of the banking system. Uh, so in a way, the, the, the Fed, for example, within one transaction, practically bought $1 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities from the private banks, put it on its own balance sheet, and gave the banking system new reserve money for it. So suddenly, the private banks <laughs> had like someone $1 got a really good deal. less dodgy loans, and therefore had $1 trillion good reserves. And obviously, they looked much better overnight. It's, it's a form of bailout. And, and I think the objective was twofold. One was to support the price for mortgage-backed securities because it's clear that if the Fed had not done this, the banks would have sold these securities as fast as they could in order to protect their capital and, and reduce their balance sheet, and they would have depressed the market for these, these assets. Or, you know, as I would put it, it would have revealed to everybody that there is no private demand for these assets, at least not at these prices. You know, they are, they are on the books of these banks at fantasy prices. But uh, and it, the, the central bank does not want this to be known and to be so visible to everybody. It would intensify the crisis. So the central bank stepped in, bought the asset, and handed new money, bank reserve money, to the banks. But please remember that you know, the, the, the Fed did not do this to, in order to encourage the banks now in the next step to massively expand their balance sheet. The banks did not want to do this because they were scared. The private sector didn't even want to borrow because of a financial crisis. People had no demand for loans, yeah. really. This was mainly done to stop a correction and, uh, and, and stop you know, bank runs. And in fact, the, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve even pays interest now, which was a new movement, it was a new decision to pay the bank's interest on these reserves. So the bank even gives them an incentive to not use up these reserves for further lending or transferring it to other banks, but just keep it at the Federal Reserve, sit on the money, and therefore have a more solid balance sheet and avoid the bank run. That was the, that was the first objective of this type of policy. So if people say, oh, we have massively expanded uh, reserves, but it has not led to inflation, I don't think this is surprising. And again, you know, maybe coming back to your because very first Because in essence, it hasn't been lent out. So exactly. And there hasn't. was no intention. Yeah, it was unlikely to be lent out. And there was no intention to be lent out. So if people said, well, look at how base money has exploded. I mean, the Fed created within three years, of, I mean, the numbers are probably about $1.5, $1.8 trillion of new money out of nothing gave it to the banks, which is much more money than the bank had than the Federal Reserve had created in its entire history up to that point. Uh, I think it's probably twice as much, if not three times as much. 
uh, let me think, the, 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 the balance sheet of the Fed was roughly about 800 billion US dollars when Lehman collapsed. It is now close to 3 trillion. So, so the, the, the balance sheet of the Fed has massively expanded, like all other central banks did the same thing. But a lot of that money was simply given to the banks to stop the banking system from co uh, correcting, not to encourage further lending, and the central bank did not, did not even want this to circulate in the wider economy. So that this has not led to wider inflation, it shouldn't surprise us. But the, my question is now, so what next? You know, because we know mm -hmm. one thing, that you know, the market has obviously not liquidated debt, because the, the, the central banks have done everything they could to stop the market from liquidating debt or from writing it down or for you know, adjusting the prices. The central banks have done what they could to stop the, the banks from contracting their balance sheets. They just bailed them out. So, you know, we still have these big banks. We probably have overcapacity in the banking sector. With given that interest rates are kept at zero to support the banking system, we don't know what the true prices of all these financial assets are because we know that you know, keeping interest rates so low is now changing the prices of many other financial assets in the, in the in financial markets. You know, the, the incentive for banks, let's say in countries like Spain, to liquidate their dodgy real estate portfolio or write it down to more reasonable prices there isn't not as much as incentive for them to do it because they can find all these positions at the ECB for zero interest rates. They get money from the central banks to not adjust, to not reveal the true damage from the credit boom, to, to, to reveal the imbalances that I keep speaking about. They're being, if you like, they're being hidden. They're being covered up with very easy money and, and, and this lifeline that the central banks give to the banking system. And, and as I said earlier, my main argument in paper money collapse was simply that, well, with this kind of policy, you know, we're not solving the problem. You know, we, we, we can say, okay, we all feel better because there are no... We're, 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 not, of... we're not solving the problem quite. No, we're because, not. Because we, 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 it, seems we, it seems what you're describing is a dynamic equilibrium. On the one hand, is are these huge market forces for um, liquidation um, to get rid of the malinvestments. And on the other hand, there are these huge government forces trying to prop the whole thing up. Um, I mean, it's, it's beginning to sound a bit like Japan over the last 20 years in that you have had exactly those two forces working and it's just managed to preserve, you know, the, the government interventions just managed to prop the whole thing up. Um, is this what we could, we could have, you know, just nothing much happening for the next 20 years? It is, it is just like Japan. It's the same dynamic and it's the same courses and the same process and the same dynamics. I call this the illusion of stability and even the illusion of of solvency, you know, a, a mirage is being created here, and 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 I like to. If you read the papers, you constantly hear about the recovery and 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 that the crisis is over. The crisis is not over, you know. We just, as some people say, we may be in the eye of the storm. You know, we just covered everything up. We we we, we depressed interest rates to zero around the world, and made sure that all banks can fund all their positions at at at, at the most, you know. Stupid rates. I mean, in, in, in Europe, I mean, what I described now for the U.S., the same thing in, in, in the Eurozone. There's all this talk about the ECB is supposedly much more Bundesbank-like, and this is all nonsense. You know, the, in, in, <laughs> well, in, now, in, now in, well, okay, is it? I mean, I, they, they seem to be remarkably coy about admitting that they are printing money, so are they? Or aren't they? I, well, the, I, I, the, 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 the ECB, I mean, first of all, in the run-up to the crisis, so the ECB was started operations in 1999. From 1999 to 2008, when Lehman collapsed over those nine years, the, the ECB created more base money 
than the Fed, or you know, expanded money at the core of the system faster than the Fed did. So I would argue in, in, in setting us all up for the financial crisis, the, the ECB has been fairly accommodative and, and therefore should take some of the blame here. Well, it's a fair point to say that in years like 2005 or 2006, ironically, the ECB may have done that even to help countries like Germany and France. You know, remember, back then Germany was deemed to be the sick man of Europe, and, and, and probably at the time Germany benefited from these low interest rates. But that is now water under the bridge. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't change the economic assessment today. This is politics. What happened is, so the ECB has been quite accommodative in the run-up to the crisis. Now, in the crisis, obviously, the ECB was reluctant to do stuff like, like quantitative easing, and some of the measures it was not supposed to do because it was legally not set up to do it that way. But the, the ECB has basically now been funding the entire you know, European banking sector. And, uh, for example, one of the things the ECB has done is lowered collateral um, um, standards for, you know, for all those securities that banks can put up as collateral with the euro system to get central bank funds. You, know, you, you can borrow from the central bank as a bank, but you need to put up collateral. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's almost anything goes. You know, the, the dodgy uh, <laughs> securities can be put up as collateral, which was, again, not supposed to be the case. Um, and, and now the central bank, the, the, the balance sheet of the ECB is more than 30% of Eurozone GDP. So in terms of, if you look at the size of the central bank's balance sheet relative to GDP, uh, the, the ECB has a bigger balance sheet than the U.S. Federal Reserve compared to U.S. GDP. Uh, I mean, what you seem to be saying is exactly the same process has happened where, whereby banks that were bust have ended up with real money or paper money and central bank has ended up with um, garbage assets. That's right. Yeah. And I'm conscious of the fact that I think we have not quite addressed you know, one question about like, <laughs> why it all this not led to inflation. Well, you see, at the first step, this is all stuck in the banking system because uh, in, in the, the first the first uh, objective was you know don't reveal how bad it is let's not have the market uh, uh, show the, the that there is no demand for a lot of these assets that nobody no private individuals no private savers you know nobody you know no private fund management companies so we will buy these assets they 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 are being parked at, at at banks which fund them at the central bank, you know, this is a, this is an artificial market. So, so, so let's keep these assets propped up. That that was the first mission. But we all know that this just doesn't solve anything. It just hides the problem. So, what's next? Now we are stuck in this. And you said, well, like Japan could be stuck in this mm -hmm. for 20 years. I mean, I cannot. If we come back to the timing question. I don't know. It's the short answer. I don't know how long you can keep such a distorted situation. Um, the, the two problems I have with this is. The imbalances are not are not fixed. If you like, they get bigger because every day you artificial you keep interest rates at artificial levels. You encourage people to take on more debt, but you're sending out signals to the market economy that you know to 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 take on more debt. Uh, so you accumulate more imbalances. I already said the private sector is still reluctant to take on more debt, but the public sector isn't. And and what we see right now is we see since 2007 2008. The public sector has gone much, much more into debt, and, and because this is, again, not funded but by savings and private um, capital flows, it again ends up with the central bank, because now the central banks are the largest buyers of their respective government's debt. That is certainly the case in Britain, where mm -hmm. the, almost all the 
the, the guild issuance of the last three years ended up at the Bank of England. Um, and so, so the Bank of England is now the largest single owner of government securities in Britain, and it's also the largest marginal buyer of new government securities uh, in the country. So which means the government is now a direct line to the central bank, is funding itself by the central bank. So you're accumulating more imbalances in the economy. Not only are you not solving the old ones, um, you're adding more imbalances on top of this. Now, in Japan, I think it was only possible to do this for 20 years because for a long, long time, the Japanese have continued to save. So in a way, they have, they have indeed, I mean, so that, that missing link that I mentioned earlier, you know, private saving, well, the Japanese did indeed save. And many of the Japanese bought government securities, Japanese government bonds for their savings, or put it into, into uh, you know, sort of public pension funds that yeah. then turn around and buy the government's debt. So in a way, the, 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 the Japanese saver has funded the government. The government has spent the money. And now that you know, these, the, government, the Japanese population is getting older, they will turn around at some stage to the government and ask for their pensions to be paid. And the government is obviously, as we all know, the most highly indebted government in the world. And they've spent the money. There is no, you know, these... These government bonds are you know, phantom assets. They're not backed by real income-generating mm-hmm. uh, uh, productive capital. Um, so, so, so what I'm saying is that yeah, I think Japan could extend this process so much longer because it was backed by saving of the economy, but even that process is coming to an end in Japan. And I I mean, this is, this is why um, they've recently changed things, I presume, is because they realize they can't actually fund it through selling to the public and they're going to have to sell the debt to the central bank. Is that why they're talking about quantitative easing and that sort of, and then the inflation target? It's a very good point. You know, I, I think they realize that they, um, um, that you know, this will not be exactly the saving rate has been has dropped sharply in Japan. Uh, as far as I know, last time I checked, it's still positive, but uh, so they're not just saving. But uh, it's, the saving rate is not what it used to be. Uh, the population is rapidly aging. And um, so the and now yeah the the with with the pressure that the government now puts on the on the Bank of Japan, the Bank of Japan is again buying, uh, buying, uh, um, uh, buying this 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 debt like it like is the case in the West. I think one thing I need to stress with Japan is like because Japan was the first country to start quantitative easing officially back in 2000. A lot of people think well Japan has been doing this for 12 years now. And they don't have inflation. In fact, they have deflation, which is not quite correct. They have practically price stability. But, but okay, they don't have inflation. So that means you can do quantitative easing for 12 years and not have inflation. That is not quite correct, because if you look at the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan, it has expanded in the first round of quantitative easing. But then the Bank of Japan has not done anything for a long time. And there were indeed a couple of years in which the Bank of Japan has begun to reduce its balance sheet again. So, you know, among the major central banks right now over the last 10 years, the Bank of Japan is, 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 uh, looks a little bit like a, like a conservative central bank mm-hmm. compared to what we've seen in other countries. Uh, and again, one of the reasons that worked in Japan, I think, is simply because you know, some of these, this, these, this government that could be handed over to the private savers. But I don't think that, that the same dynamic works in countries like the United States or in Britain. So I don't think we have as much time as Japan had with this. But uh, again, I don't want to be focus so much on the on the timing issue my key message is you know this is this is nothing is being solved that nothing is stable here this has pretty much been um you know 
uh, it's a mirage that has been created, a mirage of sustainability and, 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 and solvency. And unfortunately, the imbalances are getting worse uh, on the margin, in my view. Yes. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think, I think this, this, the, the, the point, the thing, the take home from, from, from my point is, point of view is that the inflation is not actually going to come up through the banking system. It's actually going to come, come up through, through the government. Because it, as governments get increasingly, as their deficits, deficits increase because um, the economy is slightly adjusting downwards, therefore they will have they'll have to go to the central banks to print more money. They will then spend this 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 printed money, and that will feed through into inflation. Is that would that be the process? You think? Uh, uh, yes, I think I think that is I think that is a very important process. But I have to say that um, uh, I'd like to add one more element to this, which is. If we if we just look again at the point we just arrived at, which was this description that sort of okay the the massive policy now has been we've seen so far has been mainly conducted to stabilize the system and avoid arrest that collapse you know stop the collapse. Mm -hmm. But now we realize also what we're already seeing on the margin now politicians and central bankers and the macroeconomic advisors are all getting a bit nervous you know they're getting a bit frustrated and impatient because we don't get the recovery you know or the recovery is not strong enough and now the next round will we see the new central bank measures we see for example the more recent rounds of quantitative easing are no longer geared towards keeping the banking system stable but to generate growth on top of that and encourage extra debt accumulation extra lending and extra borrowing to to, to squeeze more growth out of the system you know, the, in, in the U.S. now, the U.S. Fed has this round three now of quantitative easing. And uh, the, the goal is specifically to drive down the unemployment rate. You know, it, it, the, the Fed even came out and said, like, well, you know, we will continue. We, we, and, and there's some thought within the Fed, some argument within the Fed, that maybe the Fed should say, well, we'll we keep buying financial assets every month, you know, 40 or $85 billion or what they buy every month. We keep doing this as long as the unemployment rate is at a certain level. So, so it's now, again, printing money, expanding money, you know, providing cheap credit to the economy. It's now, again, a tool to create more growth. And I think if they do this, uh, so uh, 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 you, uh, this could also, I mean, if, if, if they get the banks on track, if, if, if the banks are willing to lend again, this could also, through other channels, then, uh, you know, help, uh, you know, monetary expansion ultimately uh, lead to to more bank credit expansion again, and then to inflation. One of the things the Fed could do, for example, is stop paying interest on on these reserves. You know, as I said, they yeah. encourage the banks to not have that money circulate, to keep it at the Fed. They pay them interest on it. They could decide to lift that interest rate, and that would immediately give an incentive to the banks to lend more. So, so the banks are still an option. But I agree with you. I think most of what we will see is now the, the, the central banks buy the debt from the public sector. Public sector spends the money. That, I think, will lead to inflation. Obviously not hyperinflation, but it will lead to higher inflation. I don't think we will see deflation anywhere. Uh, and it, it's, it amazes me that we had the biggest credit boom maybe ever. And five years into the crisis, you know, none of the major economies has had deflation, which should have been, in my view, a normal corrective process to the inflationary boom that preceded it. So in a way, you see, if you look at Britain, for example, here, you, yeah, of course, we didn't have hyperinflation, but despite the fact that the banks don't want to lend, despite the fact that we had a housing bust and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a 
credit crisis, um, you know, inflation has been uncomfortably high, you know, even 2 to 4% officially, uh, even close to 5% in one year. And now many people would say, oh, that's great, we avoided deflation because everybody is so afraid of deflation. But it tells you that still the central banks managed to push that money into the economy, and we do not allow any, any meaningful correction uh, after the credit boom to really take place. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think we'll see deflation. Inflation will continue via the channels you described. And I think for me, the key uh, trigger point or the, 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 the most dangerous point comes when the public wants higher interest rates to compensate for the persistent inflation. Uh, right now, large parts of the market are obviously happy with zero interest rates or negative interest rates. People hold gills and other securities at interest rates that are below the inflation rate. So they lose wealth, they lose money every year. Uh, when the market changes its view on that and the market demands high interest rates as a compensation, uh, then I think it will be challenging for the central banks because they, they, their mission is, as I said, to keep yields artificially low. Delev, I'm afraid to say we are out of time. So I have to just have to say thank you very much. No, thanks so much. It was my pleasure, Patrick. This podcast was brought to you by the Cobden Centre for honest money and social progress. To listen to future editions, please check out the website or subscribe to the feed. The music featured in this podcast is from Kapeka by Et.